hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the microphone Dr. Michael Turner. He's been out there in social media. He got on my radar screen, thanks to my wife and my mother-in-law. He's such a great guy. And um, he has a journey, a story to tell us about his pathway. And let me tell you what, he is a superstar. He went to undergraduate at Stanford University, uh, well-known, well-respected, difficult to get into university, and then uh, not to be stopped there. He went to Harvard Medical School. After Harvard, he went to the famed Mayo Clinic and uh, trained in physical medicine rehabilitation and then launched his career, which has taken a lot of twists and turns like so many. And I'm really, really excited to hear from him and learn from him about how the pandemic and just changes in medicine over the years have influenced him and his practice. Dr. Turner, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you, Peter. Uh, a pleasure to be here and a blessing. Thank you so much. Well, why don't we take it from there? When you left uh, Mayo Clinic, tell us about your career development and then bring us into the COVID years and what happened. Yeah, well, I left the Mayo Clinic and was married with five kids, four of whom were adopted. So uh, young family looking for a good place to raise a family, affordable cost of living and kind of put down some roots. Found my way out here to Eastern Washington and it's been lovely. I was recruited to work at a neuroscience center and uh, promptly began doing that. So initially my focus was around a lot of what my training had been in, in terms of neuroscience, non-surgical rehabilitation, some orthopedics and sports medicine mixed in with that. But along the way, I had an interest in health and wellness that would, you could call it integrative or holistic approach that really dated back to my childhood and some experiences that I had. And I was considered a bit of an anomaly as I went to med school. I was that guy who uh, had a Ziploc bag of supplements tucked in my scrubs pocket, for example, that I'd take when I was on rounds at the hospital, or I would do, you know, calisthenics and yoga in the break room, you know, overnight on call, that kind of thing, make smoothies, you know, go to the organic store, et cetera. So as I developed my career, I was finding that I was integrating a lot of these concepts out of necessity and patient interest, you know, they would say, well, I'm tired all the time, or my immune system's not great, or, you know, how do I lose this weight, or I really am concerned about getting cancer, or I feel my mind slipping and my mom just got diagnosed with Alzheimer's, et cetera. So I started to find that out of caring for the patient, my tentacles started to go in a lot of different directions, which were very consistent with my own personal interests. And so uh, I parted ways amiably with the hospital after about 12 years and launched michaelturnermd.com, hung a shingle. And coincidentally, Peter, that was January of 2020. So uh, the timing was, you know, fantastic or terrible, depending on how you look at it. So I was fresh out, uh, <laughs> fresh out there, uh, out of the frying pan into the fire, and all of a sudden COVID hits. And so all of a sudden patients are asking all the questions you know, right, in which you've documented and spoke, spoken so eloquently about, you know, how do I prevent this virus? How serious is it? How do I get my immune system up? I don't want to go to the hospital. You know, I went to the ER. They just sent me home. What do I do, et cetera. And so I, I thank God that I was in the position at that point to be independent, be able to think things through myself and, you know, have embarked on a course ever since of trying to be patient-centered and integrative and think outside the box for people. 
Now, did the new practice, did it have a, a physical clinic or did you move to telemedicine completely? Uh, had a physical clinic, yeah. So I was in a couple different locations here in my town, uh, Tri-Cities, Washington, Eastern Washington. And so I was seeing patients in person, which they quite appreciated. As you know, when everything started off, a lot of doctors weren't even seeing patients in person. So a lot of them appreciated the chance to have that personal connection, you know, the, the, the body language, the touch, the, the, the commentary, the sense of a shared experience that you just can't get via telemedicine. So we kept our doors open and we kept going. Yeah, same here. I tried telemedicine for a while. Um, I had like one day that I mm -hmm. did it. And as a cardiologist, I tell you, I felt uncomfortable. I had people, you know, dialing in from faraway places and complex valve disease and ICDs. And it was just to try to get all the data that I needed it was nearly impossible. I couldn't examine the patient. I really couldn't, mm. you know, assess their functional status. And I felt it challenging. And now um, I've moved my practice a couple of times. And now it's just, I'm just so overwhelmed with the in-person patients. It, it, you know, for me, from a practice perspective, I, although I would like to be more available to people in the country, I just can't. So unfortunately they fly at least for initial visits. Um, tell us a bit about um, your own personal journey with respect to vaccines and what you've learned and, and mentally how you've evolved. Sure. Well, a couple things began to catch my attention with COVID, and I'm happy to discuss any of these further with you. I really value your input and insight as well. The first thing that drew my attention was that no discussion of early treatment, you know, just a vacuum, a deafening silence. Right. And I was thinking, here we are in the midst of the pandemic. You know, surely there's going to be a weekly CDC briefing on how best to treat outpatient SARS-CoV-2. Right. And maybe some patient centered uh, public service announcements about, you know, keep your vitamin D level up and take some zinc. Right. And maybe some selenium and some probiotics. And this is how you keep your immune system strong, you know, or surely some eminent institution like John Hopkins or the Mayo Clinic or Harvard Medical School would come out with how to treat COVID at home, right? Or physician's guide to outpatient treatment, or it would come out on up to date, et cetera. And, and maybe, you know, from the leadership viewpoint, we would see something like a fireside chat, right? To calm and encourage us as Americans, hey, we're going through this pandemic, but we're going to get through this. We've gone through harder things. We've got some minds, smart minds working on it. And uh, let's take one day at a time, you know? But as you know, none of that happened. It was just this vacuum. It was sit around and wait for the vaccine, which is supposedly going to cause every, you know, solve everybody's problems. And meanwhile, but, but did, you, did you talk to any of your colleagues, uh, you know, Harvard graduates or your Mayo colleagues? Did you talk to anybody about where they were on outpatient treatment? Just a little bit. So interestingly, I graduated Harvard the same year as Dr. Joseph Latipo, the Surgeon General of Florida, whom you may have met as well. And he, were, he and I were fairly close friends. We actually were in the same academic society, lived in the same dorm, played basketball together, et cetera. So I reached out to him a little bit uh, early on, but nobody else, uh, you know, and, and maybe that was my lack of initiative to do so, but I was just kind of functioning on my own in many respects, drawing a lot of encouragement, obviously from you and what you had published in terms of outpatient protocols, and a lot from FLCCC and Dr. Corey, Dr. Merrick, et cetera. And um, at what point in time did you see through the pandemic where 
you just got a sense that the academic community was going to, in a sense, walk away from their Hippocratic oath. Where did you, where did that happen? How did that happen? Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a shame, you know, I, I think the how question is the collusion between the federal organizations and the medical societies and the medical journals and therefore the academic institutions. You know, one thing I try to explain to patients, and you can comment on this as well, of course, Peter, is from a doctor's viewpoint, you have to think about, do they have a leg, what, what leg do they have to stand on if they want to talk about ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, right? Or speaking out about risk-benefit analysis of the vaccine, right? When the FDA and the CDC are all on point saying certain things, when the medical journals are coming out with certain types of articles, when the state medical boards are emphasizing that, when the academic institutions are doing the same, what leg does that doctor have to stand on? And something no doctor wants to be called is a quack, right? You and I both know that. That's kind of sort of the ultimate slur from within medicine. And so there's a sense of, conformity and desire to coalesce around best practices for your patients. And to be seen as too much of an outlier is suspect, frankly, in other people's minds. And, you know, also in your own mind, in some sense, you want to kind of make sure you're staying up with best practices. I'll give you an example. I have a friend who runs an ICU here in my town. And I called him because there was a patient hospitalized. And I was trying to get this gentleman some ivermectin. He said, absolutely, Mike, I'm sorry, it just won't work. He goes, I tried that actually early on. And you know what happened, Peter? Hmm. He gave the sick gentleman a course or two of ivermectin in the ICU. The next thing that happened was the chief of pharmacy called him up and called him on the carpet okay, and said, what are you doing? You know, this is unacceptable. This is off protocol for our hospital. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know where you're getting your information. And they promptly pulled all the ivermectin, even from inpatient formulary. And he was read the riot act, essentially. So Right, but since when is best practice doing less or doing nothing and and since when would right. esteemed doctors from stanford harvard mayo clinic be proud of themselves for doing less when the outcomes were hospitalization and death i mean did that conversation ever come up between you and any of your colleagues I mean, you're probably the best trained person i've talked to on the mccullough report huh uh, did it ever come up Thank you. It, it wasn't coming up so much, uh, but I'm not in, as enmeshed in academic medicine as you are, Peter. You know, so I wasn't rubbing shoulders with people at national conferences and being on editorial boards and things. So um, I was I was more of a, a guy out in the wilderness doing my best uh, to take care of patients, <laughs> but not actively. I can tell, I can tell you, I was on a task force for major yeah. health system, professor of medicine. And, uh, you, you know, I had an FDA new drug application, big grant to redirect all my research towards COVID, had, uh, you know, NIH and industry funding. And um, I remember on one of these task force calls at one point in time, I said, listen, are, are we going to start treating patients? Otherwise, you know, our hospital is going to, we didn't have many cases in Dallas at first. And the, and the line was silent. And mm. I just got this sense that, that, these doctors actually didn't want to treat patients. They, they mm. really didn't. Uh, they wanted to avoid the illness at all costs. I think they were afraid of getting it themselves. I think that's what started. So when there was mm. fear, personal fear of getting itself, 
And when all the guidance say don't treat it, all the guidance right. is shut down your clinic. I think doctors who are really afraid for their personal health, they mm. took all those signals and and very few jumped out there and said, no, this isn't right. I'm, I'm going to try to help patients. I think I think that's how it started initially. But mm. things really got bad in the hospital. Like So for instance, yeah. ivermectin is safer than Tylenol. And you know all the other drugs that they give in the hospital, why not try ivermectin? It kind of falls into that sure. category of why wouldn't you give it a try? I mean, we give all kinds of Hail Marys in the hospital, sure. uh, really toxic things. And, and I think when it got to that point, I used the word therapeutic nihilism. I mean, do you think that applies? I do. I think that's fair. I do. It was, it was, it was quite troubling. I'll give you an example. I had a uh, family member call. His wife was inpatient, doing poorly at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. And he knew that I had gone there and he knew I was involved in COVID treatment and such. And he was working with me to try to get her some form of treatment. Um, but the doctors were all staunchly against it. And I had read an article as well that I think it was Mayo Clinic Jacksonville. Actually, the lawyers went to court to try to block the family's pursuit of ivermectin. Uh, and you can have your staff look into that, uh, you know, fact check that. But that's, I recall reading that article. So you're right, at some point it turns, very nihilistic, um, antagonistic. It, patients and their families were painted into this picture as being belligerent, uh, uneducated, easily swayed, uh, naive, un, you know, untrusting of proper expertise, et cetera. And it became very much us versus them. And it, it all came down to a power struggle in the end, where, as you know, people were going to court and tried to get the ivermectin given to grandma and smuggling it in the hospital you know, in their pockets and all kinds of things. You know, there's a, a vignette in my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, uh, the vignette of Miss Carol, and she went to a hospital in Central Texas. She actually tried three times to get early treatment. She was denied, finally hospitalized, perfectly healthy 72-year-old woman, really? goes on the ventilator, and the family goes to court, and they, they're asking for full-dose Lovenox, full-dose aspirin, ivermectin, colchicine, Pomodidine. Mm -hmm. There's like a list of things. They basically just wanted a high enough quality care as the outpatient um, AAPS protocol right. or other protocol, you know, full dose prednisone. And it wasn't all about ivermectin. And they still right. got denied. They still got denied. So even full dose anticoagulation, mm. uh, budesonide, full dose mm. uh, prednisone or solumedrol. So it wasn't all about ivermectin. It was it was about mm. complete care, and the hospital said, "Listen, it's not in the government protocol. You know, we're not going to do it. Period." And and then she died, and there was an autopsy, and her lungs were full of blood clots. Hmm. Hmm. Peter, terrible, a disgrace. Yeah. I mean, uh, let me good. share a story. It's very similar, uh, and actually, I have permission from the family to share this story. I touched on it in a recent interview I did with Del Bigtree on the high wire, but I'll go into a little more depth here. I'm going to, we'll do it as a case report, Peter, because, you know, we do that within medicine and I think it's illustrative and gives us a chance to talk about this in different ways, but I'll call it who killed Angela. Okay. And backstory, Angela started off as a patient a number of years ago, then became a personal friend kind of thing where I had her over to the house uh, to sing Christmas carols. I went over to their house for Thanksgiving. At one point I had back surgery. I spent several days convalescing at their house. She was always very hospitable, 
would always make tea, bring out nice little appetizers, and she and her husband would start a fire, and we'd sit around just talk and just, you know, be friends. It was it was a fantastic relationship. She was like a second mom to me. I actually gave her flowers on Mother's Day. Well, she comes down with COVID, and I get the word that Angela's not doing well, and can I please get over there and help? So I make a house call. I find her fairly sick. She's conversant, but she's laying in bed. She's really too weak to get out of bed. Her sister is also fairly sick, but a little more able. And I organize the best early outpatient treatment that I could. So I get all the nutraceuticals together. I think I had her on uh, some methylprednisolone, um, some basic anticoagulation, et cetera. But one of the things I wanted to do, of course, was to start ivermectin. Now, the local pharmacy refused to fill my ivermectin prescriptions. I already knew that. And ironically, this pharmacy was literally about half a mile from their house. So in a perfect world, she would have been able to go to the pharmacy that same day and get the ivermectin script. I knew that wasn't going to be possible. Her sister asked me, hey, Dr. Turner, I heard they have ivermectin at the local veterinary supply store. You know, is that all right? Should I go get some? And I said, we're, we're trying to keep this lady alive and keep her out of the hospital. Go ahead. I'll instruct you on proper dosing. She goes. Sister comes back with four or five vials of this stuff. I look through it, et cetera, lay out a basic dosing regimen. And then I order some ivermectin through a compounding pharmacy. Uh, in a different part of Washington state that was sympathetic. Then I have to go away on a vacation, okay? Chapter two of the story, I'm away on vacation. I get a beaming, enthusiastic, success-filled phone call and message from them. It's like, Angela's out of bed. She's making tacos. She's smiling. She's back to herself. That ivermectin stuff was fantastic for her. Thank you for everything you, you're doing. She's doing great, but we're running low on this. And by the way, we went back to the feed store and they're all sold out. There's no more on the shelves. And I said, sit tight. I've got some ordered. It's going to be there in a minute. You know what happened? Hmm. The ivermectin that I prescribed for her got lost in the mail. Okay. It hmm. got lost in the mail. We didn't know this, of course, for a few days. I call, I reorder it. In the time that it's lost in the mail and in the time that they ran out at the local feed store, she decompensates. Again, mm. I'm away on vacation. I get a phone call. She's, her, she's desatting into the upper 80s. She's kind of having labored breathing. Um, and then a family member panicked and took her to the ER. So the next time I actually talk to Angela, she's impatient. And she's like, oh, Michael, I'm not doing too well, but you know, I'm, I'm, I, they just want to do a few breathing treatments for me. I think I'm going to be able to stabilize here really quick and, and get out of the hospital. I said, great. I said, Angela, the thing you need to do is get out of the hospital ASAP because then we can treat you and then we can do what we know what our, was already helping, the nutraceuticals, the methylprednisolone, some anticoagulation, and the ivermectin, which had you up making tacos and feeling great again. You know, We know we can get you there. So please just get out of the hospital as soon as possible. And we'll get back to business, right? That was the last time I spoke to her. She spent a day or two in the hospital, got intubated, and mm. then despite, despite her expressly saying, I do not want remdesivir, once she was intubated, they went to the nearest family member and said, mom's not doing well, she's really going downhill, um, you know, we're going to just do everything we can possible, you know, how about this remdesivir option, which family consented to, she got remdesivir, within a few days she developed kidney failure, and died. And when that sister who had managed to stay alive through some of the veterinary ivermectin, she said when she went to pick up her sister and the hospital, she saw her dead body. She said she was bloated. All her limbs had all this edema and she was diagnosed with kidney failure. And by the way, a staph infection. And That's absolutely heartbreaking. It is. It is. It, it just, it just tore my heart out. And then meanwhile, the ivermectin shows up in the mail from my effort number two, 
it arrived, but the family members couldn't give it to her because she was already in the hospital at that point. So they sat, it sat at home. It sat at home. How old was yeah. she, Michael? She was late 60s, very healthy woman, very healthy. She was the type of person who was still downhill skiing, uh, kayaking, vivacious, you know, very athletic, no comorbidities. You know, th this is the type of story that there's so many teaching points. The first is that, you know, November 20th, 2020, the World Health Organization came out and said, do not use ivermectin. It does not improve mortality, can lead to kidney failure and hepatic failure. So at that point, no hospital should have administered it. By the time she was sick, um, uh, the the chest paper, the ICON study, a prospective mm -hmm. multi-center study of ivermectin was performed by J.J. Roster and published. There was a 50% reduction with ivermectin, so there's no reason why it shouldn't have been used. And um, we had a situation where um, there, there was there was a stripping of rights, the the right to medication reconciliation or continuation of the drugs as mm -hmm. an option wasn't afforded to her. Shared decision making wasn't afforded to her. And so many deaths, you know, we were at about 1.2 million Americans who died, almost all of them in the hospital with COVID, 90% COVID pneumonia alone. The others had contributing effects. And, you know, United States leads the world in COVID deaths. We're only one-sixth of the world's population. We lead the world. So what was done in America, the, the, the question on the table is, uh, do you think in her case, if you had the full breadth of everything you could do as a doctor, could you have saved her? Oh, I'm certain. I'm certain. Uh, and I would say that on the basis of how much she improved just initially, once we got her organized on the nutraceuticals and uh, even, you know, the veterinary ivermectin uh, and some anticoagulation, she bounced back. She did really well. It was only when she ran out of ivermectin that things started to go downhill. And, you know, this was... Uh, an illness for some, it was a very long illness. A lot of people don't realize this. Uh, yeah. You know, I had a, a few deaths in my practice, but it was at like four weeks, six weeks. I had one at 90 days. Uh, none of these were fast. It's not like people died in a few days. I mean, what, 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 what day do you think she died? Yeah, so this was probably, yeah, this was probably three weeks into it, something like that, three to four weeks after she came down with it. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, tell us a bit more um, about your... Uh, thought process as the COVID 19s vaccines were launched on December 10th of 2020. You were uh, now kind of a year into your independent practice. Right. What was your view? What was your view on the vaccines? Absolutely. Well, if I may, just make one final point there towards ivermectin and early treatment. You know, I found it very disingenuous when they would make these statements that ivermectin should not be used to treat patients, you know, under no circumstances, we, we have to wait till we do more studies on it. It's being actively investigated in XYZ trials, but we don't have that information yet. Therefore, do not use it, right? And I'm gonna just be very simplistic and ask a very simple question. Why were they studying it in these trials? Why? Because it must have had the potential for benefit on some level, right? If it, if it didn't have any mechanistic plausible way to benefit the patient. They wouldn't spend millions of dollars and put scientific R&D into even studying it. So if it is possibly helpful enough to study in some academic medical center somewhere, why is it not possibly helpful enough to give to Angela or somebody else who's on the verge of dying? 
especially in the setting of a, a fatal disease, a novel pandemic, uh, we're not sure. You know, when I wrote the very first uh, treatment protocol and published it in the American Journal of Medicine, and then the it became the um, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons Home Treatment Guide. The, the only rules that we really had was was there a signal of benefit? Was there was there a promise there that we could see from the preclinical and clinical literature? And was it safe? And, or, right. or was the safety profile such that we could manage it? And so, you know, we felt most comfortable with the oldest drugs, uh, hydroxychloroquine and uh, aspirin and uh, we felt that some of the nutraceuticals uh, were, were were safe and you know reasonable based on sure. what we knew we, we we didn't say that any single drug was going to be a miracle drug I, I thought that was always um i always wanted to be cautious and i i cautioned others on saying that because it's a fatal yeah. illness there's no fatal illness that a single drug is a miracle drug it doesn't work that way we always use even a staph infection we use multiple drugs so it was never about a single drug. Um, and we had these phases, right? The virus was replicating. Uh, then there was inflammation or cytokine storm and then thrombosis. So we had to cover three bases. And it was that thought process that, you know, to this day, the National Institutes of Health or the Infectious Disease Society of America, they still don't even have the illness, in my view, um, framed the right way to have a treatment approach. Mm. Uh, so... Um, this was a situation, you're right, so so many things. Um, uh, so one would always want a patient in a treatment protocol. I think it's fine to say, listen, uh, we don't advise using it uh, outside of a treatment protocol or, or using it, you can use it empirically, preferably in a treatment protocol, but it's always the doctor's judgment in mm -hmm. the end. I mean, we use drugs and we have used drugs way ahead of the outcomes studies. For example, in mm -hmm. cardiology, we used lipid-lowering drugs way mm -hmm. before there was any outcome trial to prove that it reduced rates mm -hmm. of myocardial infarction and stroke. Uh, we, we do the same thing uh, in so many other areas of mm -hmm. medicine. But here in this novel pandemic, I think the, the base conservative approach that the governments were advising to do nothing, to me, it was a recipe for hospitalization and death. Mm -hmm. It was pretty clear doing nothing was the worst of all the treatment options. And there was a survey published by Verdkart and colleagues and um, that demonstrated a, a huge study that, that only the patients who essentially received no or insufficient treatment ended up in the hospital uh, and, and, and eventually died. It, you know, some died in the hospital. There was another study, I believe by Hong and colleagues that showed even getting monoclonal antibodies, those who got mm -hmm. monoclonal antibodies, but ended up being hospitalized they, they tend to survive the hospitalization. Multiple studies showed that. So the question is, even when she hit the panic button, you were on vacation, she couldn't get ivermectin, she at least should have gotten monoclonal antibodies in the ER. I bet she didn't get them. I bet she did not. No, I think she did not. You're right. You, do you see what I mean? So it mm -hmm. seems to me that just everything about this pandemic response was wrong. So the denial of any early treatment was wrong going into the hospital, and even initially, the, the guidelines say, do not treat the patient until they need oxygen. It, it, that would be like saying we shouldn't start uh, <laughs> you know, antibiotics for a community-acquired pneumonia unless they need oxygen. Or, 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 you know what right. I mean? It's, it's, right. I mean the, even that was fundamentally wrong. Early intubation was fundamentally wrong. We learned that we could manage people 
with hypoxemia at home. The hypoxemia was amazingly well tolerated. The pulse oximeters created more anxiety than anything else, mm. I think. Mm. Good so. point. Well, to, to build on a couple of things you said there, you know, I think this at its core was a major violation of the doctor-patient relationship, right? Violence was done to that. Decision-making authority was taken away. You think of people like Dr. Fauci who never treated a COVID patient in his life, you know? You think of people on the CDC, some bureaucrat putting out a statement or somebody from the FDA never treated a COVID patient in his or her life, I'm sure, and certainly was not in the room with me and my particular COVID patient. So where was the medical judgment, which is what we're trained and paid and commissioned and trusted to bring forth to make an individualized decision, a risk-benefit analysis for this patient right now in these contexts? Where was that allowed or preserved? And it wasn't. It was trampled upon with edicts from politicians and from bureaucrats all the way down that said, you know, this is the completely inappropriate and this is the only appropriate option. It doesn't matter, you know, that I never went to medical school. It doesn't matter that I've never treated a patient. It doesn't matter that I don't even know who your patient is or what she's dealing with. We're very sure that this is what should and shouldn't happen, which is just terrible. And which highlights for us, Peter, we have to work together with patients to take back the sanctity of that relationship. We have to take back our power because outside of COVID, this could happen again for any given scenario, right? When are we gonna let, you know, the governor decide what medication can or can't be prescribed or the FDA to make these threatening uh, statements. For example, if we ask the question, why couldn't Angela go to her pharmacy to get the ivermectin? The answer is, as you know, probably have talked about on previous shows, the FDA did some saber rattling to all the pharmacies. There was a mass email, as I understand, that got sent out saying, don't prescribe uh, ivermectin for COVID and report people who do, et cetera. And what was so ironic is the ivermectin was sitting in the pharmacy. It's not like it was a supply chain problem. It wasn't. If she had had scabies, she could have had all the ivermectin she wanted, right? I know, but Michael, why is it that, uh, let's say it was common, uh, I believe, for the for the big chain pharmacies to not, you know, fill ivermectin prescriptions, but why did the community pharmacies do it? Why was this? Why was this two tiered? system of pharmacy dispensing. How did that develop? You know, I, I, I'm not so sure. I, my, the pharmacy I'm referring to is more of a small local chain pharmacy, but there's obviously some group think that, that goes on. There's some, you know, blaming corporate office decisions that go on. And then there was an undue amount of autonomy granted to the independent, uh, the individual pharmacist, I would say as well. So sometimes we would find that it would literally depend on the pharmacist. You could send the same script to the same pharmacy and depending on who was on call at that moment, your script would or wouldn't get filled because someone would become very sanctimonious and say, no, this isn't appropriate. I refuse to fill the script, even though it is a lawful, valid prescription by a licensed MD. We had a pharmacist sort of putting their foot on it and saying what wasn't wasn't going to go out the door, which is de facto practicing medicine. I mean, it was yeah. terrible. You know, I had a, a pharmacy in Dallas. Uh, I'll never forget. I think it was the summer of 2020 or 2021 where they called and, and they challenged a prescription. It was either hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said uh, the pharmacist, you know, what they would do is they would have a routine where um, the patient would come in and then they would tell the patient, well, we have to call the doctor and check the dose. 
And if they couldn't get the doctor on the line, uh, they would happily tell the patient, sorry, we can't fill the prescription. So it was like an administrative SOP that they were running. Right. And, um, and so <clears throat> that, you know, I would get these calls and, and I would see it come in from a pharmacy. So I try to pick it up because I kind of knew that if I didn't, the patient may not get the drug. And then they said, uh, they said, is this a prescription? What's the indication? What's the code? What's the ICD code for this? And you know, I, I, I write medicines all, all day long. I don't have to get the ICD codes. Uh, right. So there are some ICD codes that would apply to the symptoms of SARS-CoV-2 that would match. And so I, I gave them the codes. And then she goes, well, you need to talk to my supervisor. I said, oh. So they put the supervisor on. He goes, he goes are you aware that the government uh, guidelines, NIH guidelines say that uh, this should not be done outside of a research protocol. And then I said, you know, why don't you turn to page eight in the NIH guidelines, since you have them right there, where it mm -hmm. says that these are just guidelines and ultimately it's the doctor's decision on what medications are prescribed. And I remember referring to that page eight paragraph all the time to tell them, listen, in the end, the doctor has the, the, the order. But it was clear in the minds of pharmacists, they seemed very satisfied uh, and motivated to deny patients treatment. Now this is, you know, pharmacists are busy. They got a lot of prescriptions to fill. They got a lot of phone calls. They're dealing with a lot of serious drugs. Mm -hmm. This guy took time out of his day mm -hmm. to read the guidelines, to get me on the phone and to really you know, try to stop this prescription in the end, very disgruntled, he filled it. And my question is, you know, does he read the guidelines for back pain every day and diabetes and, and community-acquired pneumonia and bronchitis? Is he reading right. the guidelines and calling the doctor? Um, I was with another doctor in Dallas who was early treatment. I was at his office and I noticed his, his phone kept ringing and it was simply the pharmacist doing this SAP. And they would say for hydroxychloroquine, we just want to verify, is the dose 200 milligrams twice a day? He goes, yes, it's exactly what I put in the, you know, this is, these prescriptions come in electronically. Um, right. They're very straightforward. And, uh, and then they would call again on the same prescription, a different pharmacist. We're just calling again to verify. They were just hoping that they wouldn't get them on the phone so they yep. could turn the patient down. So it was in the minds of pharmacists to turn patients down, but not all pharmacists. The community pharmacies, they reached out to us and said, listen, any prescription will help you out with. And so it's interesting, some type of memo went to some pharmacies and largely the big chain pharmacies, but right. obviously it didn't go to the community pharmacies. The community pharmacies, they actually wanted the business. Right. So the whole thing is so challenging. We've been talking to Dr. Michael Turner, who is um, a superstar. He's very well-trained and very articulate and we're going through our observations of the first part of the pandemic. And I really wanna to get to his life story on the second half of the McCullough Report. So let's take a break for our sponsors and then we'll be right back. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Cofix RX is Pavidone Iodine Nasal Spray in a 1.25% solution and a spray bottle that actually actuates the pavidone iodine into a gentle spray into the nose in order to kill nasal pharyngeal pathogens 
the viruses that cause the common cold, paramyxoviruses, other coronaviruses, adenoviruses, as an example. Common bacteria, including uh, pneumococcus, haemophilus, staphylococcus, uh, streptococcus, all those common organisms that cause sinusitis. Uh, importantly, the uh, product is used with a spray pump up each nostril. Don't hold your head back, just in a neutral position. And there it can be used uh, about three times a day in a 24-hour period. When anybody gets sick in the house and Cofix RX is not far away. So go to CofixRx.com and in the promotional code, uh, put in out loud for a discount. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We are having a convo with Dr. Michael Turner. He's young, he's handsome, he's athletic, and boy, he is a terrific father and committed to his patients, uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation. But Michael, you really became a medical doctor during COVID. It sounds like you really did everything you could to help your patients. Indeed, Peter. I say that actually I felt more alive, uh, more invigorated, more dynamically involved with my profession and more in the role of a healer than I've ever felt at any other time. I wonder if you feel the same way, but it was uh, an eye-opening and extraordinary experience for me to really try to step in to be all that I could be as a physician. No doubt about it. The last several years have been the most rewarding of mm-hmm. my life. Sometimes I feel like I'm a character in some type of action movie or or spy <laughs> novel or something yeah. going on. You know, I'm a cardiologist and internist, but, but people say, well, you, you know, you're not an infectious disease specialist. I said I am now. I mean, you know what I mean? We've we've done right. so much, and uh, in a sense, we you know we uh, have kind of gone a little bit, in a sense, outside of our scope of practice. Or better stated, we expanded our scope of practice yes. to manage this. Now, how did you also expand your scope of practice in physical medicine rehabilitation to include some of the integrative aspects of medicine, that, which really now are becoming uh, of high interest and popularity? Yeah, well, I had an interest in health and wellness all along. I was raised by a mother who was very health-minded. She was, you know, somewhat in the realm of the hippie movement and such. She went to Cal Berkeley in the late 60s. She worked at a natural food store. So when I grew up, for example, we couldn't have sugary cereal. Uh, TV was greatly limited. We were encouraged to play outside, to read books. We had dinner every night at the table. Um, I was never allowed to have video games. So I grew up with a mind that was already, you could call it integrative in its approach towards you know, health and wellness. And then I think a second pivotal experience for me was in high school. My basic public high school health class was really very eye-opening because they ha- we were studying about the eye and the heart and the lungs, et cetera. And I just felt like it was as if 
the hood of the car were being lifted and, you know and i could see all the inner workings and you know we live in our bodies of course but how self-aware are we uh and this was the fascination in the middle ages when they finally started to do autopsies as you know in the history of medicine autopsies had to be done surreptitiously people had to sneak into cemeteries and such um because there were prohibitions against you know opening up the body like that but it was there was a whole new world underneath and that's sort of what i felt like going through high school health class and so i started running lifting weights you know eating uh, better and such like that so that was my integrative focus it was just really personal and then in my professional realm i set out to essentially share what i was doing personally which was i'm obsessed by the question what would it feel like to be as healthy as i could possibly be right that's my driving question i'm kind of an overachiever uh, and a perfectionist and i just got obsessed with this question what would it feel like to be as healthy as i could possibly be i'm not trying to be as healthy as somebody else over here you know who's a professional athlete or goes to the gym every day i'm not trying to be as healthy as my 27 year old self but how could i be as healthy as i could possibly be at my age am i doing that and if i were to do it how much better might i feel what would the return on investment be for my professional life my business life you know my mental acuity to help my patients etc so i always had this continuous improvement mindset and as i went through medical school i never felt like i was signing up to only deliver medications you know that wasn't the oath that i took the oath was to help the patient Right. So in my mind, I'm always thinking my job is to help the patient the best way I know how. And maybe that means a medication to lower their blood pressure. And maybe it needs to, means they need to put some blueberries in their smoothie every morning. And maybe it means they need to go get their colonoscopy. And maybe it means they need to start doing Tai Chi to work on their balance and their fall risk. And maybe it means they need to go uh, get that blood sugar lowered with some more aggressive medication. And maybe it means they need to start intermittent fasting and improve their insulin sensitivity and take some nutraceuticals to stimulate AMPK pathways, etc. So I never felt boxed in that I would, could only give one type of answer. I was always looking for the most helpful approach that was most applicable uh, and most cost effective for my patients. And I felt like it was my duty, my job, my moral responsibility to go find that wherever it was and bring it and serve it up to my patients. Okay, great. So what I want to do, that was actually really good. What I want to do is I want to present to you an imaginary patient and I want to hear what you would give as initial brief dietary advice. Sure. Okay. So, so you know, with just just as you would do it, no dietitian, no nurse, just you, and, and they're asking for a brief dietary advice. So it's a 60-year-old male who's five foot eight and weighs 260 pounds. So he's obese. And He's had uh, a total hip replacement uh, just about uh, two months ago, and uh, he's gone through the hip replacement rehab. He's still working on that. And uh, he's been told that his weight contributed to his degenerative joint disease. He has some in his knees and his ankles and his other hip right now. He is um, a type 2 diabetic. And he's on metformin, and uh, he has hypertension, and he's on uh, an ACE inhibitor and, uh, and a diuretic. And mm -hmm. he doesn't have any coronary heart disease, and he has normal kidney function, normal liver function, normal electrolytes. And he eats an unrestricted diet. Mm. So he would ask you, he said, listen, I'm, I'm in trouble. I, you know, I just haven't been paying attention to my, my 
weight or health over time. Dr. Turner, you look like you're in such wonderful health. You're a wonderful role model. I could never look like you did, but how can I get better? What would be your brief dietary advice? Sure. Uh, first thing I would mention would be to try the idea of intermittent fasting or at least paying more attention to the chronology of when he eats. Uh, and that is to say getting in sync with your circadian rhythms and getting in sync, therefore, with things like insulin ebbs and flows. And so I talk to patients about the idea of an eating window. So an eight-hour eating window being like 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., for example, uh, even a more strident eating window would be a six-hour eating window, again, let's say noon to 6 p.m. Um, the beauty of this, as you are well aware and probably have spoken about, and Dr. Jason Fong, for example, is all over the internet talking about this, um, but the intermittent fasting stimulates insulin sensitivity for sure. And also, people will start to lose weight even without changing the composition of what they eat, right? If they can just eat what they eat in a different time range, the weight will start to come off. And it's particularly important, I would tell him, that you front load your calories towards daylight hours. The way I tell people is, you know, a McDonald's hamburger at 1 p.m. is not the same as a McDonald's hamburger at 10 p.m., okay? Not even close. It's okay, hormonal. So just, just stop there. Yeah. So insulin, yeah. so this idea of, of using intermittent fasting to, um, to, in a sense, start to, to leverage the hormonal balance without a lot of technical details, because most of our listeners are not doctors, they're, they're right. lay people. Um, but this idea of intermittent fasting, that's completely different from the old advice of eating little nibbles, kind of eating continuously through the right. day. Uh, people used to say, don't let yourself get hungry. Uh, right. did, was that all that old weight loss advice? Was it all wrong? I don't think it was all wrong. No, Peter. You know, many people did lose weight uh, doing that. But as as physician scientists, we want to be open to evolve and to, you know, stay up with best practices and best understanding. I think some people that can work well. But if you can manage to move yourself towards the intermittent fasting zone, uh, it's it's preferable. I would say it's more potent. The way I describe it to people is, look, when you go to sleep, OK, you eat your last meal, you eat dinner. Your body's digesting those calories. They wash through your system, let's say, over the next three or four hours. Sometime in the middle of your night, your body shifts to fat-burning mode, okay? Because you still have basal metabolic rate. You still have to burn a certain number of calories to keep the lights on, so to speak, uh, as you're sleeping and run all the central physiologic processes. So when you wake up in the morning, your body is already in fat-burning mode. So here's the kicker. Why stop that by putting something in your mouth? The moment you put something in your mouth, your body shuts off fat burning mode and goes to dealing with what you just provided it. Instead, run with it, accentuate it, let it that fat burning mode roll out as long as you can into that next morning. And in fact, accentuate it by doing cardio. So this is where I describe uh, exercise component coming in. I tell people, skip breakfast, leave your fast going until 10, 11 a.m. and instead do some cardio in the morning. Again, cardio in the morning on an empty stomach is not the same thing as cardio late in the day on a full stomach, uh, just as a hamburger at 1 p.m. is not the same as a hamburger at 10 p.m. So I try to just get the chronology a little bit different. That tends to be a great first step because number one, people know his results. Number two, they don't actually have to eat anything differently, right? I'm not telling them you can't ever eat steak again or you know you have to stop putting salad dressing on your salad or stop putting creamer in your coffee. I'm just saying let's just shrink up the eating window a little bit and give your time, give time for your body to actually burn fat. You know, so that that would be dietary principle number one. I think the next thing I do is I talk about the concept of a low-carb slash low-sugar diet. Again, I take my cue a lot from eminent people like Dr. Robert Lustig. 
I remember when I watched this video, Sugar, the Bitter Truth was an internet phenomenon, got tens of millions of views, which was in my mind uh, sort of ironic and striking, but also a sense of pride because here he was an academic physician giving a community talk at UCSF you know, School of Medicine for probably 40 people in the audience. It was like their Wednesday night you know, professional talk or something. And all of a sudden it becomes an internet phenomenon, but with very good reason. So in that video, he talks about how sugar is basically a metabolic poisoning, especially fructose. It's terrible for the liver, messes up insulin levels, et cetera. So I talk about the principle of a low carb slash low sugar diet. And I put it out like this. I say, essentially, your body has two different fuels it can use, burn for energy, carbs or fats. It could also burn protein, but it doesn't like to do that. Obviously, protein being a structural component of your muscles and your bones. So unless you're starving to death, and catabolizing yourself, you're not gonna burn protein. So your body wants to exist in either burning fats or burning carbs. Now, fats actually have more energy per unit volume than a carb does. And so if you can switch your body into fat burning mode, you're gonna end up burning more energy and you're also gonna have a more sustained energy source. Again, I use the metaphor of a carb would be like lighter fluid. You're hitting your fire with lighter fluid and fat molecule would be like a dense oak log that you put on there. Right, And so I tell patients, if you are eating a lot of carbs, your body switches from fat burning mode to carb burning mode, which is exactly the opposite of where you want to be if you want to lose weight. Whereas if you starve your body of carbs, in quotes, to a degree, right, it shifts away to fat burning mode. And by the way, as it shifts to fat burning mode, you end up uh, with more steady energy source. And you don't end up with these ups and downs of feeling tired, et cetera. I mean, I, how many of us have had the feeling? I certainly have, Peter. I would go out to breakfast, you know, with a friend and sort of in a moment of indiscretion have two pancakes, three pancakes, some maple syrup, you know, et cetera. And then I'd want to fall asleep, you know, a half an hour later, 8 a.m. I just feel sluggish and want to go home and fall asleep. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, I've always been curious about yeah. two things. One, clearly pancakes and waffles and this idea of you want to fall asleep an hour or two later. And the other thing is eating Chinese food and a massive amount of rice, and then you're hungry an hour or two later. Let, let me just tell you what I do on brief advice so you can see how different it is. You, you get into a lot of the science and, 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 car, and, and, you know, and everything you described. I do it a little bit differently. <clears throat> I say that someone like him, the patient I described, his goals is he wants to lose weight, he wants to improve or resolve diabetes. He wants to reduce his risk of, of, of heart disease. And so because there's multiple goals, there's no single diet that's published that really works that way. So people say, well, what is this? Is this um, Adkins diet? Is it Sugar Buster's diet? Is it South mm -hmm. Beach diet? I said, no, it's everything. Actually, the whole goal of diet is to be eclectic with everything. And so what I tell people, is that listen, uh, uh, with respect to weight loss, that about about eighty percent of weight loss is diet and twenty percent is exercise. So exercise needs to be there. But people who 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 are obese, if they just exercise alone and don't change the diet, essentially mm -hmm. the weight doesn't change. So mm -hmm. I said for that, so it's eighty percent diet, twenty percent exercise in terms of the determinants of weight loss, and then among diet, that one needs to make healthy choices and have portion control, both. So it's very important. So if you just make healthy choices, but the portions don't change, then, then there's no weight loss. So then in healthy choices, what I, what I, I boil it down to is what do, what do people need? So they need high quality sources of protein. 
And, and all sources of protein are about the same in terms of the polypeptide. What the difference is, is the package. It's the package yes. in which the protein comes. So I say high, high quality sources of protein in this order, fish, beans, nuts, egg whites, non-fat dairy, and then occasional lean meats. That means occasional chicken, mm -hmm. pork, and beef. Occasional. And it doesn't mm -hmm. mean chicken every day. People think it's chicken, chicken. No, occasional. And then fresh fruits and vegetables are unlimited. Mm -hmm. So then now that makes it easy. So what should you get rid of? The three S's. The first one is sugars, sweets and treats. Second one is starches, anything made out of flour. Uh, that means all the baked goods uh, and then potatoes and rice. And then people st immediately start to negotiate. I said, listen, starch is sugar molecules linked together. You don't need any of it. None of it's needed. It, it's, it's, it has no essential amino acids, no essential fatty acids, not a good source of fiber, not a good source of vitamins. You do need no starch. And then the last one is saturated fats. And saturated fats nowadays is pretty easy. So it's uh, burgers and fries, pizza, and gooey cheese. So, so, uh, and I tell patients, listen, I'm, I live in Texas, uh, you know, I'm not a vegetarian, but if you can go two days a week, vegetarian, that's terrific. So when people do that, um, I tell them, listen, that's just healthy choices. That's just healthy choices. Now you need portion control and mm -hmm. then portion control. Then we start to work on it. What's new for me is intermittent fasting. I used to teach that, you know, you have small meals and you don't get excessively hungry, et cetera. The intermittent fasting, I've really started to become convinced. Um, and uh, what I've found for myself, Michael, and what I find for most people is they're not very hungry in the morning. I, mm -hmm. I think most people honestly could skip breakfast. Most people maybe crave a cup of coffee, but they can mm -hmm. skip breakfast. And so mm -hmm. the most uh, uh, available um, intermittent fasting would be, let's say you stop eating at seven o'clock at night, just go ahead and take it all the way around to about you know noon or one o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Again, the eating window is six hours. And, uh, you know, I, I give patients brief advice in the office. I do it verbally. I explain it to them. And, uh, you know, and I used to have a one-page handout. But I think it had it have to get to be that simple. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I realize in the dietary literature, you know, about 60% of all calories in the United States comes from starch. And I use mm. the word starch. I don't use carbs. Because people get confused. They think an apple, you, you, you know, while both have some carbohydrate in it, an apple is very different than a muffin, very different. And what I've told people is, listen, I've never seen somebody come in my office obese because they eat too many um, Macintosh apples. I've never seen it. I've never <laughs> seen it. People come in uh, obese because they eat way too much, too many muffins and bagels and buns and cookies and crackers. That's where it's coming. Sixty percent of the of the uh, diet is starch, and as as soon as that starch gets out of the diet, the the caloric intake plummets. Right, and, and, and people just can't eat enough apples to make up for it. I don't, you know, you know, you could sit and basically have um, enough chips, and you could just keep eating chips and chips and chips. In fact, or or Cheetos or Doritos, and keep mm. going and going because you eat one and then you want more. But when you eat an apple, you say, that was good. I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, another good, uh, and, and I think people need hunger control strategies. You know, another thing I do, like today, I was hungry. And I was seeing patients in the office. And I went back there. I was talking to one of the, the girls in the office. I said, you know, I need some hunger control. 
You know what I reached for? I reached for just a few walnuts, shelled walnuts. Mm. Best hunger control. And she goes, well, I'm hungry too. I said, here, just try a few. Chew them good and swallow them. And then ask yourself in a minute or two, are you hungry? And right. it, it's amazing. I, I had those walnuts now, gosh, right now it's about 8 o'clock my time. I think I had the walnuts at like 3 in the afternoon. I am still, it's really taking care of my hunger. Wow. So, um, so anyhow, we all get brief advice. We just have a few minutes left, Michael. Um, what I want you to do is just, uh, why don't you tell our audience, since you're pretty big out there in social media and your practice, uh, to tell our audience how they can learn more about you, how they can find you, how they could potentially be a patient or, or, or a person who follows you and learns from you. Oh, well, thank you. Sure, Peter. Well, Substack would be the primary way. So Dr. Turner, uh, D-R-T-U-R-N-E-R dot Substack dot com. Um, there I publish health and wellness articles and also put up my podcast episodes. And then the podcast specifically is called MANA, M-A-N-N-A, MANA with Dr. Turner. It's on Apple. It's on Spotify. Um, yeah, would be happy to connect with people. You know, right before we end, if you still have a chance, Peter, I, I would love to go back to your question there about the vaccines. We didn't quite get a chance to talk about that, but, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your perspective and, you know, chat about well, that a little bit. We just have a minute or left. Well, why, don't you, uh, why don't you tell us, uh, what do you think? Do you advise your patients to take COVID-19 vaccines? Most people know. Uh, almost, I almost never do because the risk-benefit ratio is not favorable for almost all demographics, essentially. Uh, and I started to become suspicious of them through studying the spike protein right and i would encourage the audience if you want to do your own research just read every just enter the search term covid spike protein or sars-cov-2 spike protein and tell me what you find and it's all very negative the sars-cov-2 spike protein has very negative physiologic effects and then just realize my question was well does the vaccine create the same exact spike protein is that what we're talking about and the short answer is Yes, in fact, worse. Everything the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein can do, the vaccine spike protein can do, and more. And when I realized that, I said, my gosh, we're putting in the most toxic part of the COVID you know, virus, arguably, and we're instructing ourselves to do that. And it's, we're creating widespread uh, volume of distribution through lymph, et cetera. This is a disaster. And that was the beginning of me really questioning that. Okay. Well, you know, I'm I'm at the same point. You probably know I've advised in the U.S. Senate to pull them off the market, so I'm unlikely mm -hmm. to 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 go back from that. Listen, Michael Turner, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. This is going to be a wrap for this show, and um, and I can't wait to reconnect you, uh, connect with you at the the meetings coming up and and out there on this on the circuit. Indeed, thank you so much, Peter. It was a pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation very much, and I uh, look forward to connect with you again. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.